Good afternoon to you all. So, do you have some questions about practice? Instead of three parts, there's nine parts. It's lifting, 
lifting, lifting, raising, moving, lower, placing, placing, placing. And so you can walk very slowly in that way. sensations and see if you can discern the distinct sensations that occur in each of these nine phases. So that, for example, when I'm lifting my heel up, there is a distinct sensation as the, the, the decompression of the tissues as I take the weight off. And then there's a, a feeling of, uh, uh, it's almost like a tingle as the blood goes into those tissues where there's no longer the pressure and kind of coolness as uh, it no longer has contact with the ground. If I'm wearing shoes, then even as it comes up, there comes to be a little bit of a, 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 a space even between the heel and the, and the uh, sole of the shoe. And so I just observe those sensations. And likewise, for each part, there are the sensations that are present. Even there's a difference in the sensation of raising compared to moving it, compared to lowering it, if you pay careful attention. So you can come to distinguish and clearly recognize all of the sensations that are present in each of these nine phases of a single step. You can see that you're going to automatically remain much more focused and concentrated on those uh, and those sensations in order to accomplish this. And that also, your mind has to become very, very sensitive uh, in terms of the uh, uh, awareness in order to distinguish those sensations. That's how you can do the slow walking uh, to further increase your uh, skills in uh, both concentration and mindful awareness. Now, you will, after you've done this for a little while, you'll come to uh, recognize the sensations that are usually there for each part of this. And as they become familiar, then you can walk slightly faster and see if you can still catch with your mind all of those different sensations. So that's another way of doing the walking practice. that is, that's good to do when you, uh, uh, for several reasons, if you're feeling, if you're feeling dozy and sluggish in your sitting practice, then walking in that way can sometimes be just what you need to re-energize your mind and bring you back to uh, a state of uh, alert awareness. If you find that you're making good progress in, in concentration and uh, mindful awareness and you just want to accelerate it, then that's another good reason to do that practice. So I'd like you to try that one out and uh, 
uh, experiment with it and see what you can what you can learn and what you can accomplish from doing that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have a question, and uh, uh, it is totally out of the teaching, but would like to uh, ask your uh, maybe direct guidance. We experience some kind of uh, uh, dharma practicing in this way, and silent and quiet, and go inward. But I know some uh, other ret- attend other retreat. Uh, they also practice dharma, but use totally different way. For example, fully express our emotion through singing, through music, or through other uh, crying or whatever, and get into the emotion very, after express all the emotion and get into very quiet and mm-hmm. go into the dharma or some practice. And this is totally different if we keep, you know, those no emphasize quote-unquote emotional thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would like to direct here from you, you know, what's different or, or, or what's the, um, how I word it, um, what's the important, you know, not through the outside, go inward directly, you know, to practice. Am I clear my question? Just opinion, just to see how do you... You're just wondering about the different approach? Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course what we're doing here is is much more direct. Um, And, uh, you know, there may be some certain advantages to doing, uh, to approaching it in this other way of getting all of the emotion out, things like that, to create a state of calm. Um, and perhaps that's better for some people than, than you know, than, than this would be. I, I don't really know. Um, because people are all so different, there may be some people that, uh, that suits them much better. I don't know if that's right. My wondering is that no doesn't matter how we soothe all the emotion. This is just a phenomena. We still need to go back, and when only when we quiet, we go inwardly. We can get into the root uh, directly, and instead of depend on or, or 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 use the media from from the emotion or seeing or express ourselves. And, and, and that is still stimulation from outside. And if we quiet, that is directed to a room, but I don't know if that... Yeah. Well, the, the thing... What we're doing, no matter how you start, you've got to do what we're doing. You've got to, you've got to go inside and you've got to cultivate your own ability. If you did some dancing and singing first as an aid, as a help, uh, you know, I, I, I could see that maybe that would be helpful, but you have to go beyond that. And, uh, you know, if you, spend, uh, if you spent two hours being emotional and dancing and singing and, singing and afterwards you were very calm, that's fine, but 
if that was the only way that you could bring about a state of calm, then that would not be a very, you know, in the long term, that's not very, you're, you're, de- you're dependent upon this outside uh, activity. You can also become calm taking uh, Valium. <laughs> you know. um, it's not about becoming calm exclusively. Becoming calm is an important part of it. And so we kind of make a distinction here that there, um, between those states that are a part of a process, but not the end in themselves. And the, the actual end and purpose of the process. Um, the end and purpose of the process of any kind of spiritual practice is to achieve the, the wisdom and realization that uh, uh, brings you to, to the goal. And in the case of the practice that we're doing, the goal is to uh, is that wisdom that liberates from suffering and that cuts the root of uh, desire and aversion that uh, perpetuates the suffering and overcomes ignorance. So that's our goal. And insight is a means to that end. Concentration and mindful awareness are a means to the means of insight. And, of course, we can use all kinds of aids to help us to achieve concentration and mindful awareness and to help us to achieve insight. But they're only the, only useful if they contribute towards achieving the final goal. And uh, the other thing too is that um, it is a process that takes some time and repetition. And so the more that you can rely entirely upon the uh, inner skills that you've developed, and the less reliant you are on external factors and activities and things like that, then, uh, then the, more, the, the more easy it is to enter into those necessary states that we described as means. And uh, so that's going to be more conducive to achieving the final goal. So, to go back to the original question, I see, I, you know, it, it's interesting that there are many varieties of activities that people can engage in. Chanting, drumming, uh, singing, dancing, uh, Sufi dancing is one. Um, we find ourselves at things like Qigong, is is also an aid that's conducive to achieving those those goals. Um, there are practices within different schools of Buddhism that involve a lot of 
uh, chanting and visualizing uh, and uh, and the movement of inner energy that are also used specifically for the purpose of aids of bringing you to to have those states, uh, those mental states that are necessary for achieving the final goal. So there's many different things that we can use along the way. All I can say is what we're doing here is somewhat more direct and it leads to uh, ultimately to a far greater degree of independence of external phenomena. And actually, if uh, if your training is primarily in uh, uh, using the breath meditation as a means to bring about uh, tranquility and powerful mindful awareness, that's always available to you right up to the time of your death. You know, and as a matter of fact, traditionally when the list of the advantages is given for the breath as a meditation object. One of the advantages is that it's always there until you die. It's immediately accessible. You don't do, need to do anything to make it happen. And uh, you, you can, you know, at the, at the time of your death, you can continue to practice this meditation. You can use the breath to enter into uh, uh, the state of shamatha to so you know that's one of the, that's it. of course in, in a way it's like selling dish detergent every meditation method meditation objects comes with its sales pitch of all of its advantages that go with it but that's one of them that goes with the breath practices it's always there it's there by itself you don't need to make it happen it's not like a visualization that you need to create it's not like an object that you have to have one of, and if you don't have it, you know, you're out of luck. <laughs> but uh, I think fundamentally, uh, what any person is going to do, you come into contact with these different methods, is to evaluate their suitability and effectiveness for yourself. But it's, I, I think it's a good idea to always uh, ask yourself, you know, uh, you see the advantages, and of course the people that are teaching it will tell you the advantages of them. Uh, they're less likely to tell you the disadvantages, so you need to look for those yourself. Um, ecstatic states of mind are wonderful, and the meditation practice that we do here produces ecstatic states of mind. But they're not, they're not the purpose, they're not the goal. And uh, there are a lot of other things that you could do that could produce ecstatic states of mind. Unless you know how, and unless you have a clear way to use those ecstatic states of mind to achieve uh, the attainment of wisdom, understanding, and liberation, then they're just fun things to do. That's all. And so you, you should keep that in mind. But uh, as long as uh, as long as an activity, and it doesn't matter what kind of activity it is, as long as an activity produces 
the uh, mental states that are useful in achieving the goal, and as long as it's clear how that you can make use of them in the in pursuing that goal, then they're wonderful.有些禅师在盖禅坐的时候在禅坐的中间呢他们是用跑箱的跑箱就是走得很快那也有的禅师是说精行但是速度也很快所以呢我是觉得说他们可能并不很了解这个精行的意义甚至呢我有时候会怀
And so what what we do see, what I found myself, I have I have friends that uh, you know I I respect the realization that they have, but they hold different views. They've had different kinds of experiences, and they've learned in a different tradition. And that's the problem that each of us have. What's very good is when we talk to each other. If we can be open-minded, we can learn from each other. But if we're not open-minded, we find ourselves slipping into the thing of saying, well, I don't see how that could possibly, I don't see how what you're teaching can possibly be any good because it's different than what I learned. And what I learned got me to the goal. You know? Uh, I, I have one friend, and that's, that's exactly what he keeps saying. And the funny thing is, I found myself saying that to somebody else who's asking me about a different method and I'm saying, well, uh, I feel like uh, I must sound like so-and-so, this other person, because we all know each other. I feel like I must sound like this other person, but, you know, based on my experience, <laughs> I don't see how that's going to work. <laughs> you know, uh, where it's unfortunate is when you have different teachers, different masters that, you know, they don't really know something else. But, they can still make the very human mistake of saying, ah, it's no good. <laughs> and I shouldn't do that. But we are limited by our own experience. What, you see, what was very special about uh, the person that we call the Buddha is, you know, when you become enlightened, there's four stages, and the, the fourth stage, you are a Buddha. But this person, this particular Buddha, is special, is what's called a, a Samasan Buddha. You know, uh, what that means is that he has a degree of wisdom and skill and understanding that transcend, transcends the level of uh, of arhats. And for this reason. Was able to was able to teach in many ways to many different kinds of people, uh, but samasam Buddhas are rare compared to arhats and Buddhas and uh, people who have realization at the lower stages of the path, but are not uh, are not fully realized beings themselves. And so, to the degree that that is the case. Uh, we're limited by our own experience and our own understanding. One result of that limitation, and you know, I made reference to this before. I, I feel like that the Buddha Dharma is not as effective as it once was, and I feel that amongst uh, all of the, there are so many, many different methods. Uh, and so many different teachings, but the result is a certain amount of confusion. And I think that there are uh, there are some methods that are counterproductive, but they are not recognized and understood as such. You know, if uh, well, just to go back to the Buddha. Now, if you look at the life of the Buddha. He left home, cut his hair off, went to the forest, became a sannyasin, 
And he studied with two different teachers, and he studied meditation and learned the jhanas. And from the first one, he mastered up to what we sometimes call the seventh jhana, or the base of nothingness. And when he had done that, the teacher said, now you know everything I know, together we will lead my disciples and teach them. And the Buddha recognized that this wasn't, this wasn't really the, uh, the final goal, that he, hasn't, he hadn't really uh, discovered the answers to the questions that he originally left home to find the answers to. He went and found a second teacher uh, and with that teacher, continued to learn meditation and the jhanas and mastered the uh, next one beyond that, which is called the, the base of neither perception or non-perception. And this teacher said, well, now you know everything I do. You know, here, you, you take over. You be the teacher now. And uh, the bodhisattva, who was yet to become the Buddha, said, well, no thanks. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And then he went off and he studied all kinds of uh, ascetic disciplines uh, that involve inflicting a lot of suffering and self-denial. He did that for many different years, for, or for many different years, for many years. Practiced a variety of different techniques. The end result of which he came to the conclusion that this too was not leading him to, uh, to the goal. And then of course he He had some food to eat. He was almost starved to death. He rested. He sat down. He remembered a particular practice that he had uh, a practice experience that he had rather by accident when he was a child and discerned that within that was perhaps the path that he needed to follow and he followed it and became enlightened. But he didn't then teach everyone that, well, the only way you can do it is first you've got to master John is to the base of nothingness and then to the base of, uh, of either perception or non-perception. And then after that, you've got to go and learn to live on three grains of rice a day and to stand on one leg for 24 hours in the sun <laughs> and to do this and to do that. He didn't say that. He was able to distinguish those practices that were beneficial and contributed towards his enlightenment and that could do the same for other people, and to not bother telling them that they had to do the ones that weren't. He could tell the difference. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us can. If you achieve enlightenment, and part of what your teacher tells you you have to do is three times every day you've got to stack Coke cans as high as you can reach, you know, <laughs> you'll probably teach your students that's the only way to become enlightened. You know, you can't distinguish that, well, it's the meditation practices and stacking the Coke cans had nothing to do with it. All you know is you did these things and it, you know, got you a good result. So, I mean, that's... When you come across all these different teachings, keep in mind, number one, they all may be valid. Number two, some may be more valid than others. And that you can't necessarily... uh, Assume either one to be the case. A lot, you know, the traditional lineages are very important because that's where teaching is passed 
from one person to another to another. And so it helps to assure that um, that there is this, this continuity in the teachings. But they also have a downfall. You know, if, if you trace your lineage back to the Buddha, you know, and there's 150 gurus in the chain, uh, and every other one developed some minor misunderstanding which he passed on. Well, you're going to get 75 gurus worth of misunderstanding by the time it gets to you in the lineage. And unfortunately, I think that's the problem with all these different lineages that have come down to us today, is they all contain a lot of accumulated error. Some of it nonsense, some of it perhaps even detrimental, but there's a lot of accumulated error. So, it's just one of the things that you have to recognize about the way things are. But you know what? We live in a remarkable time. It used to be, a hundred years ago, you know, say, uh, 1909, the ability for people to travel was very limited. Out of all the people in the world in 1909, a comparatively small number were actually able to travel to different areas and to learn things in different places. Most people, the Buddhism that they learned was going to be what was taught at the temple or monastery closest to where they grew up. And for the majority of them, that's the only thing they would ever learn. For a small minority of them, they would travel to other monasteries, but most likely in the same region and in the same tradition. What we have today is all of these different traditions available to all of us. You can, you know, from where we sit right now, you can go find Theravadan and Zen and Tibetan teachers, and you can find Kagyu teachers, and you can find Yingma teachers and Bon teachers. Uh, you can find uh, teachers from the, uh, from the forest uh, uh, lineages of Burma and Thailand, or you can find uh, teachers from the Theravada traditions of Sri Lanka, which are, once again, different. Uh, all of this is available to us, all of these writings. So we're no longer limited to just what happens to be in our neighborhood with whatever accumulation of errors there may, may have been in that particular lineage over 2,500 years. It's all available to us. Not only that, we have the power of, uh, of different ways of thinking, learning, studying, examining, comparing, and incredible communication with the internet. We are in a wonderful position that if, if we don't act like, uh, like cattle, blindly following the footsteps of the cow in front of us, if we don't act like cattle, we have an opportunity to communicate and discern what are the methods that are most effective and what are the ones that just simply don't seem to be serving our purposes. And maybe they serve the purposes 
a thousand years ago, but that doesn't mean that they do in modern life. So we have the opportunity, and this is what I think is beginning to happen, especially as Buddhism comes to the West. You know, it's like we the West is a, a vacuum, and uh, all, all throughout Asia are all these different schools of, of Buddhism. And so they're all being sucked into this vacuum and getting mixed up together, and this is the opportunity to have a look at them all and study them and distinguish them and, and take the uh, realized masters and put their heads in an MRI machine and see if they all have the same results. <laughs> you know, I think this, and this is wonderful. This is absolutely wonderful. And we need this, too. Because, you know, as I pointed out the other day, the, these traditions, as they pass down to us, you know, with all their cumulative errors, are not producing results fast enough to save the world from what we're doing to ourselves. <laughs> so our only hope is that with them all coming together and all of us as educated, intelligent people with an aspiration for our own salvation will apply all of our different skills and abilities, both individually and collectively, to both achieving the result and to discerning what are the methods that are most effective in helping as many people as possible achieve the same result. So, fast-walking meditation. Um, I probably have never been exposed to the particular practice you mentioned, so it would be unwise for me to say anything about it. But it would be important for someone to compare that practice with the ones that I teach and decide... You know, and, and the same, what is best for one person isn't necessarily best for everyone, so variety is good. But these things need to be compared and evaluated. Try, try them out and, and uh, see what works best. I have added, from what my teachers taught me, I have dropped some things and I have added many other things, and I'm always learning. I go to retreats with different meditation teachers from different traditions, and every time I do that, I come back with some new tools to work with and some new understanding that uh, I hope to be able to use and to pass on to other people. Yes? Speaking about the, uh, the tools, um, can you give a brief overview of your 10 steps? And uh, uh, what the path or the path is uh, after that? And the path after that? Okay. That will take a little bit of time. So let me just check and see what the other question was, because it may be more. Actually, yeah. I'm just following her. I have been one of those meditations several. Mm-hmm. And I think they do sit and meditate. But I think the walking part, I think my thinking, I may be wrong. Because in those, very often the Buddhist temple, they have nowhere to go outside. Mm-hmm. So they have to walk inside within the meditation hall. So you sort of go around the meditation hall. It's really meant to be for you to exercise, to get some blood. More for exercise. Yes, because you're doing so much sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
don't yeah. seem to be mindful meditation. Yeah. Give me right. But you have to be mindful. Yeah. When they say stop, you have to be immediately stop. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Go, go, go ahead, because this is, this is sort of going to something that's going to take up the rest of our time. So, oh. if there's other questions, oh, it's okay. It's, uh, it's, I'll, I'll defer it till later. Time. <laughs> okay. All right. So, to you asked me to briefly go over the ten stages and to talk about, but happens after that or I put it uh, I'll put it a little differently I think to go over the ten stages and put that in the context of other practices and the final goal so first first of all these are ten stages that if you reach the tenth stage you have achieved something that is known as as Samatha or Shamatha or Shine uh, or Calm Abiding. It's a special state where basically you have brought your skills in concentration and mindful awareness to a state of, uh, for lack of a, a better word, we'll say to a state of perfection. Uh, keeping in mind that you know there is not a state of perfection, but. <laughs> a very, very high degree of refinement. Uh, And and what that is defined in terms of is uh, the mind is, as the Buddha described it, malleable and wieldy. Something that is malleable, you can shape to your purposes. And something that is wieldy is easy easy to use, right? So it's a mind that uh, can be shaped to your purposes and is easy to use. And in that sense, it's a mind that you're going to investigate, use to the purpose you're going to put it to is the investigation of the true nature of reality to obtain uh, an understanding of ultimate truth. Uh, It is a mind then that you can direct wherever you choose and the power of the mind will rest as directed for as long as you wish it to. In order to carry out investigation, this is a very important quality of the mind, that wherever you direct the mind, that the full power of the mind is, is focused on that towards which you direct it for as long as you wish it to be. Uh, which is a, a lot of what we mean by concentration, stability of attention, and also focusing of attention. So as I say, the full power of the mind is available. Now, it this is a mind that also is wieldy. It can... It's not that it's locked on to a single object. It's a mind that can move swiftly from one thing to another as things arise and pass away and thus investigate and discover very directly the nature of impermanence. It's a mind that also 
the degree of its focus can be either very narrow and very tight or very broad and very open so that it can be used to investigate very specific things and it can be used in an open way to investigate the way that reality unfolds moment by moment. So, uh, in terms of concentration, in terms of directed and sustained uh, attention and single-pointedness and scope of awareness, uh, all of these things that we train ourselves in are leading to this, a mind that that we can use in this way. An analogy would be that it is, uh, it's, it's, if you were searching for a treasure in a dark place, you'd need a light that was steady, not one that's waving all over the place, but one that is held steady and can be moved at will from one place to another. Right? And one that, uh, you know, how flashlights have a little, you can turn the lens and you can spread the beam or you uh, wider, you can make it narrowly focused. So it's like that. Now the other thing is has to do with mindful awareness, the power of mindful awareness. You know, a, a mind that's dull and is lacking in clarity, uh, it, it's like a light that's dim. And you may be able to hold it steady, but if there's not enough light, you can't see what you're looking at anyway. So there needs to be the power of mindful awareness, which we train ourselves in in this awareness. And, the, uh, and we measure and evaluate that by the, the vividness of the perception that we have. But there's another aspect of this too, which is clarity. Um, dullness obscures our perception uh, when there's lack of clarity, we don't see what's really there. You know, if there's something in front of your light that creates shadows and colors and shapes, then that distorts what you're looking at. And so the other aspect of uh, mindful awareness that is very important, it's not just the vividness, but the clarity. It's learning to see what's actually there and to stop projecting expectations to see without judgment, to see without preconception, to see without uh, prejudgment uh, of what you're going to see, so that you can see what's actually there. So when a person reaches shamatha, they have they have developed concentration and mindful awareness, uh, and these are two of the factors of enlightenment. Samadhi and Sati. There are seven factors of enlightenment. They have Samadhi and Sati. In doing so, through the unification of mind, they've also, their mind is in a state of joy. And the word for that is Piti, and that is a third of the seven factors of enlightenment. By reaching this tenth stage where there is some of Sanata, they've also achieved tranquility. The mind is calm and clear. And that tranquility, the word for that in Nepali is pasadi. And that is fourth of the seven factors of enlightenment. There is also equanimity. The mind is non-reactive to what it 
it sees. It doesn't grasp onto or push away from whatever uh, it observes and investigates. Uh, and the, the word in Pali for that is Ipeka. And that is the fifth of the seven factors of enlightenment. So a person who has achieved this tenth stage, Samatha, has possession of five of the factors, five of the seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, actually, they also, in addition to that, have energy, which is a sixth of the seventh factors of enlightenment. The only one remaining is called investigation. And so that's really what comes after the samatha. Now, the ten stages that lead to samatha, the first stage is you have to establish a practice. You have to overcome the tendency for procrastination. The grossest form of distraction of all is the one where you go to a movie instead of meditating. <laughs> right? So you have to establish a regular practice and devote yourself to it. Indeed, ultimately to reach samatha, it has to become really the dominant thing, the most important thing in your life. But to begin with, you have to establish a regular practice. You have to overcome all the tendencies to allow other things to interfere, to get in the way, the procrastination, the not feeling like to do, like doing it today, uh, so on and so forth. You need to overcome all of those. The second stage has to do with the practice itself. You choose an object, any object, a practice, any practice, and it's a question of being able to do it. And of course what happens is the mind is jumping all over the place, doing all kinds of things, drawn this way and that by different interests and concerns. What happens is if something captures the attention, if it captures the attention long enough, you forget the practice. Uh, And once you've forgotten the practice, then the mind does what it usually does. It goes from one thing to another thing to another thing to something else. And a large period of time has passed before you remember, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So, the second stage of the practice is overcoming mind-wandering. Your biggest problem is forgetting and mind-wandering. You're not even interested in considering the possibility of single-pointedness or anything else at this point. Because forgetting and mind-wandering are such big problems, they're the ones you deal with. That's the first stage. Or not first stage, it's really the second stage. <laughs> Sorry about that. The second stage is overcome, forgetting and going on. Now, as you start to get good at that, you reduce the mind wandering down to next to nothing. So you have periods where you forget the meditation object, but they're not long periods. And so the mind doesn't wander all over the world to the future and the past and Taiwan and New York and everywhere else. Yet, you lose the meditation object, but just for a short time and you bring it, then you come back. And you are with the meditation object for a long time. And this is in the third stage. You're with the meditation object long enough that with the meditation object acting as, as the, the center to, to hold your attention, 
you now start to discover something about the nature of the mind itself. For the first time in your whole life, you're actually able to start seeing what goes on in your mind simply because you've got the meditation object acting as an anchor that, and, and even though it may be only for five minutes at a time before you forget again, still, in the rest of your life, you haven't had five minutes in a row where you've been able to be continuously aware of what's going on in the mind. So the third stage of the meditation is very important. You're starting to see the nature of the mind and the way it works. But you still have this problem that you're good for five minutes and then you forget. And then you're good for three minutes and then you forget. And you're good for eight minutes and then you forget. And then you're good for four breaths and then you forget. And you keep coming back. But after a while, you catch the mind before it loses the meditation object. And then you're at the fourth stage. You never really forget anymore. You've overcome forgetting. First you overcame mind-wandering, now you've overcome forgetting. Now you're with the meditation object. Now you're able to spin. You're, you're sitting practice with an awareness of your mind because it's anchored to the meditation object. And you can see what's going on in your mind. And what you find is that out of all the different things that your mind has got going, there's a struggle to keep the meditation object at the focus. And in the fourth stage you find that sometimes you're centered on the meditation object and everything else is going around in the background. Other times something else has come and it's at the center of your attention and the meditation object has slipped off to the edge. But you haven't lost it. But this is a stage where you're learning a lot about the nature of the mind. Most importantly, you're developing, you're really making some great progress in developing mindful awareness, the power of mindful awareness. Not only that, you're learning to be mindfully aware not only of the meditation object, but also of the mind itself. And this is what's really important. That's intermittent at this stage, but it's it happens often enough that you can catch you can catch before the mind slips too far into dullness and distraction and so that you completely lose the meditation object. That's the fourth stage. In that stage eventually you overcome both strong dullness and, and gross distraction, which means that uh, when I say you overcome gross distraction, there's still subtle distraction. There's still all the other stuff going on in your mind. But you can keep your mind focused primarily on the meditation object. And you've overcome uh, strong dullness. You're no longer struggling with deep drowsiness. And, you know. Then you come to the fifth stage. You have subtle dullness. When you have this degree of concentration, you're now at a great danger. The mind can slip into a comfortable dull state where it stays with the meditation object, but it mostly stays with the meditation object so easily because you're in a state of dullness. And it feels very pleasant. And, and if, you, if you don't recognize and overcome subtle dullness, you can develop a way of practicing that you sit down, oh, isn't this nice? And you put your attention on your breath and, and you just have this wonderful sort of fuzzy, warm, relaxed, comfortable, watching the breath for an hour, and then you get up and 
That was great. Ah, I feel really good now. But it's not going to get you anywhere. (laughs) So in the fifth stage, and the fifth stage is one that you could make the mistake of skipping. The rest of them, you've got to master them because, you know, you can't go ahead without them. But you would be in great danger if you skipped the fifth stage and allowed yourself to develop a habit of subtle dullness. Fifth stage, you learn to recognize when your mind is losing vividness and also when you're losing clarity. When you're seeing what you expect to see instead of what's really there and when what you're observing is not sharp and clear and distinct and vivid. That's the fifth stage. When you've mastered that, then you can worry about that's the time that you first begin to be interested and concerned with developing single-pointedness. Up to now, you've let all kinds of other stuff go on in your mind at the same time. But now is the time to do something about it. You want to bring that, you want to be able to sharply define and delineate that focus of your mind. To bring the full power of your mind to bear on whatever it is that you're observing. And that's the work you do in the sixth stage. When you have succeeded in coming to the point where there are the only unusual sounds uh, and loud sounds are you really aware of, and only the sharper pains and itches and discomforts of the body really penetrate into your awareness, and only the occasional thought briefly can, can move into the sphere of being actually known and just because you don't latch onto it, it breaks up and disappears. Then you've entered the seventh state. You're able to sit there, take your meditation object and become quite single-pointed with it. In the seventh stage, though, it still takes constant vigilance and effort. If you relax too much, you'll become distracted and you'll lose it. Or you could even slip into dullness. So you've got to constantly be vigilant. Uh, what's actually happening is there's still, your mind has these many parts and there's still parts of your mind that are active, uh, creating distractions of various sorts and that's why if you're not vigilant, one of them can carry you away. In the seventh stage, your mind starts to come into unification. There stops being these competing tendencies and so at some point your concentration and your mindful awareness become effortless. When that happens, you reach the eighth stage. Effortless concentration. With unification of the mind and effortless concentration, the, uh, there is, the sitting becomes very easy. Your body is very comfortable, very still, even suffused with pleasure. You uh, tend to have uh, a feeling of, of energy in the mind, joyfulness and happiness and the meditation becomes quite enjoyable. Um, the energy can still be disturbing, and the joy can be uh, exciting, and, and it's really wonderful, but after a while you start to, you start to become familiar with it, and it, be, it tends to predominate less, and the energy becomes much, much more refined. The, the, mind, the state of mind is joyful, but it's no longer exuberantly joyful. It's peacefully joyful. And this is the, the ninth stage, 
where you are becoming familiar and comfortable and as you're starting to develop more tranquility, less excitement and more tranquility. And then, when that's fully developed, you've reached the tenth state. You have samatha. Now, once you have samatha, then you can engage in those practices which are intended to bring about insight and wisdom. Well, the fact is that you can do those other practices earlier. The single-pointedness of the seventh stage is the absolute minimum level of concentration that you have to have to do any of the insight practices that are known in the world today. The uh, Mahasi-style practice of uh, observing the rise and fall of the abdomen and noting whatever comes along. Uh, You have to have a level of concentration corresponding to the seventh stage before you will start being successful with that. They don't teach you the steps to go from the first stage to the seventh stage in that technique. You just have to go and sit down and struggle until you finally reach that stage of concentration. And then you will begin the progress of insight according to that particular method. Uh, if you look at the teachings of uh, uh, Mahamudra, or Dzogchen, or Tantra, or things like that, they all assume that you've developed Samatha before you start doing them. But you can actually start practicing these things uh, at the uh, really at about the eighth stage of concentration development. You can start practicing them. But you won't, you won't really be able to practice them in, in their best form until you've, you've advanced further along. But you can do them simultaneously. Um, the most, one of the most powerful and refined of insight practices actually makes use of the jhanas, the absorptions. And you can start doing light jhanas or absorptions at the seventh or eighth stage. But to do the deep jhanas, which are most effective, uh, you, you really need the, the power of the shamatha of the tenth stage. So basically, as to what comes beyond, uh, there are these kinds of practices that you can start at the seventh or eighth stage, but they will be most effective when you reach the tenth stage of concentration. And even in those practices which don't stress concentration, like the Mahasi method of insight, you will be at the tenth stage before you reach the the stage in the progress of insight where you uh, experience uh, uh, enlightenment. It's a stage called the knowledge of uh, the equanimity towards formation actually corresponds to shamatha. And so when they talk about practicing vipassana before shamatha, they're talking about something like that method that you get with the seventh stage level of concentration, you can start practicing vipassana, you can move through the insights, but then you have to you have to actually achieve samatha before you're going to uh, achieve the path and fruition. Uh, so, no matter where a person starts, they when they get to whether they, whether it's at the seventh or eighth stage or whether it's the tenth stage. 
you're going to need to do a practice that leads to insight of some sort or another. And Mahamudra is a very, very powerful one. For those people whose concentration is good enough that they can achieve jhanas and do jhana practice, then you can, you can develop insight through jhana practice. Or you can take up any other method of insight. The other thing, though, and this is what I'm going to talk to you more about uh, as we go along this week, is that you can achieve a number of the insights in the process of developing samatha. Starting with stage one and two and three, you can start achieving the, the insights. You can start the progress of insight. You don't have to wait until you're at the seventh or eighth stage or the tenth stage to begin. Although you can. You can do it either way. I'm feeling rushed. Lunch is getting cold. You used up almost a half an hour of your lunch break already. We better stop. I don't know if I really addressed the question to the degree that you were hoping that I would. No, yeah. Okay, according to uh, the <coughs> 10th stage you described for us, does uh, this mean uh, we want to reach the 10th stage and keep it at least? Uh, no, not at least. We have to really know non-sale and keep, won't lose it. I'm not sure I understand the question. The okay. Uh, the 10th stage yeah. you described yes. to us. Does uh, this mean uh, we have to really understand non-self and keep it, won't lose it, if we want to reach the 10th stage and keep it? Um, well, absolutely what you... What you want to to achieve is the realization of not self or emptiness of self, and once you do, you you won't lose that, and that can actually happen anytime. But the best way to make sure that it happens is to uh, achieve at least the seventh or eighth stage of concentration, and preferably the tenth stage. Maybe you didn't understand my answer. Yeah. <laughs> See, the, of the insights, and, and this evening I'll talk to you about the insights, about Vipassana. But um, the, the crucial insight is the insight into not-self. A person becomes a stream-enterer and achieves the first stage of enlightenment by realizing, that, by, by realizing uh, uh, not-self. So that's what makes it so important. All of these other stages are means to that end. And I just want to make sure it's clear. You don't, it's not that you will never achieve insight and enlightenment until you achieve some particular stage of concentration. Because it could happen to anybody at any time. <laughs> it's just that until it happens, you're better to keep improving the level of your concentration. And of course, once you achieve that, it becomes, the concentration becomes much, much easier, too. I, I think, uh, may, let, me, let me decide to see if that is what you say. <clears throat> so it's not uh, try to understand what, uh, to, what is not self, mm -hmm. then in order to reach the 10th stage. It's no. the other way. It's the other way around. It's 
if you can get to the 10 stage, it's easier to know what is non-self. Right. Right. If you're lucky, you might discover the truth of non-self on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, I think it's time to have lunch. We'll continue this evening. Thank you.